You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. What's up, music fans? Welcome back to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and our normal fam has kind of dissipated this week, so I'm here with my best friend, Stephanie. Hello, everybody. (laughs) And Stephanie brought along our other best friend, her husband, Bob Perry. Hi, everybody. And Stephanie, you brought a great guest with us this week, so why don't you introduce your friend? I did. I brought my friend Teresa Kariakis. We are so happy to have you here, Teresa. We're going <laughs> to sort of delve into the early LA punk rock scene. You really, that you're an OG member of, basically. <laughs> um, your photography, man, it really captures the essence of that era and, and documents an important piece of music history. But um, before we delve in, I just want to give our listeners a brief history of you. So let me know if I'm lying about any of this, okay? Okay. okay. <laughs> Okay. You are an actual LA native, which I think I read something where you said you were one of seven people that were actually (laughs) born in LA. Well, Um, Teresa is one of the main crew of about 150 or so core members of that original LA punk rock scene. She began taking photos at a very young age. And uh, so she naturally took photos of the early LA punk scene. Uh, So much so that her pictures were used on many of the punk albums that came out at that time. Um, Her photos have been shown all over the country in an exhibit called Unguarded Moments Backstage and Beyond. Her photos appear in three coffee table books, Punk 365, the official punk rock book of lists, and a history of the Bomp label and magazine. Uh, During that era, she worked on and off at the legendary Whiskey Club, which um, I'm sure you have some fabulous stories about. Uh, she got into TV production in New York City for many years and then landed at VH1, and that's where we met, through my old boss and friend, Joanna Spock-Dean. Spock was also a key player in the L.A. punk scene with her band Backstage Pass. Teresa and Spock have known each other since the early punk rock days, and then they both happened to work at VH1, unbeknownst to one another. Um, so, yeah, Spock was going to be here and joining us today, but she's sick, and we hope she feels better soon, but we are, we're totally psyched to have you here, Teresa. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it's one thing I want to say. Spock and I were born in the same hospital, a oh few years God. apart. But I mean, that is <laughs> wow. That's like when so you're cool. an LA native, it's just it it gets yes. It doesn't get more native than that. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> so I want to know first. Can before we you know delve into your photos and everything. Was there one moment or was there one show or band that really got you into the punk rock scene? What what was your what what drove you into that? Um, I think back then in the um, mid 70s, all of our friends were in bands. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's that um, that old adage that when kids saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show the next day, everybody formed a garage band. Well, you know, I was like, I don't know, six, seven when that happened. And, and I didn't form one, but when I was in high school, all of my friends had little garage bands and Mm -hmm. 
you know, they were just playing the the songs they liked of the day, whether it was James Taylor or the New York Dolls, because, you know, they happened at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, it was the music of the New York Dolls, the MC5, all that mm-hmm. um, kind of raucous stuff with, uh, you know, social commentary that I, I really enjoyed. And um, I would also read all of the rock papers, whether it was Cream Magazine or Rock Scene, NME, and uh, Melody Maker from the UK, and also Sounds. Oh, yeah. And we started reading about the Sex Pistols in the mm. English paper, and, and they sounded very interesting. Um, we started reading about Blondie and the Ramones in the New York papers, and it's like, man, I, I was a fan of Blondie before I even heard their music, because fronted by a woman who wrote the songs um and they were into you know like surf music and girl groups and b movies yeah that was just like right (laughs) up my alley right so you know we just followed their actions their antics their travels and when we uh learned of opportunities to see them we did Mm mm-hmm then radio back then also played a really major role. There is um, before it was a format. It was an independent radio station, K Rock, K O I Q, in based in Pasadena, California, and uh, there was this DJ Rodney Bingenheimer. Yes, and he played. He just played all the local bands' records. I mean, he held court at Cantor's Deli um, every night. In Hollywood, you know, in in West Hollywood on Fairfax, on that sort of Jewish restaurant row. And if you were in a band, you could just like give him your record and he would listen to it. And, and, you know, I'd say nine times out of ten, he would play it. I mean, he just because he was building up the scene. Yeah, he really did. I know he was a true um, tastemaker and um, really start launched the careers of so many bands. Just right, so like the Go-Go's, for yeah. instance. You and know? the Bengals. Yeah. <laughs> the Bengals, yeah. 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 So I, I want to mention your Instagram site, which is at Punk Turns 30, because you have loads and loads of insanely amazing pictures of that you took from the scene. I, you were you were drawn to the camera at a very young age, Um and I read I read a cool comparison about you that, dur- that during the heyday of the L.A. punk scene, you became like the West Coast counterpart to the New, New York City music photographer, Roberta Bailey. And, uh, you know, your photos also appeared in Cream and Rolling Stone and Playboy and stuff. Um, so and I know you did a, a zine also with Pleasant Gaming. So I want to get into that in a minute. But did you did you realize that your pictures would become sort of this documentation of this moment in history or did was it more of a casual kind of fun hobby for you I know this sounds like really <laughs> precocious but um I was always into non-fiction film you know documentaries I always was from like the beginning of time because you know my my parents took I was at the firstborn child and so you know I don't know what any of your birth orders is but you know like new parents are like this is our kid you know no other kid has ever crawled on the floor <laughs> right no I was the kid, first so yeah <laughs> no other kid has ever pet a dog you know there is a bazillion <laughs> pictures of me doing every little thing and I, I think it was just ingrained in my mind since I was a child is that you you know you you document everything 
my parents had a camera and, and I used it. I broke it. They got another camera. I used that. <laughs> um, they got a, a movie camera. And we would go to Japan in the in the 60s every summer for a several-week vacation to meet up with my dad, who was doing some work for the U.S. government in Vietnam. Mm. So we would meet in Tokyo. And, um, you know, we would take... Uh, Super 8 movies of all the touristy things we did, you know, like going to a deer park, going to a Buddhist temple, uh, looking at Mount Fuji, hoping the clouds would part so we could see the top. I mean, we just documented everything. So, um, you know, documenting the things that you did, um, whether it was um, your friends at uh, high school football games or parties that you threw. Right. Or, or hanging out in your own backyard with your family, um, taking pic- going to a concert and taking pictures there was the, only the next natural step. Yeah, because yeah. I feel like some of the the pictures, I mean, they're just very natural and casual. Casual. I mean, one of my favorite ones that I that I often go back to is the one when you're. I don't know whose house it is, but with Billy Idol, Joan Jett, Lorna Doom, Pleasant. And you're all just sitting around on sofas chatting. And that's just like, you see that photo and it's like, holy crap. You know, <laughs> it's just amazing. Well, that, that was Joan Jett's apartment. And she lived catty corner from oh the God. whiskey. And so um, before you went to a show there, you just just drop by. I mean, she had this wow. sort of constant <laughs> do drop in. And you just, you'd go. she was an emancipated minor. Yeah. And and so, you know, she was like, you know, 17, 18, 19, like everyone else when we were 17, 18 and 19. Only when she was 17, she had an apartment. So <laughs> so yeah, everyone got that was the so place. everyone gathered there. And because she was in the runaways and she had toured the world, mm. um, she'd met all these people. Like she I, she knew everyone in Sex Pistols, bef- you know, while we were still listening to their records. Right, that's because, right, she was so young in the runaways, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like 16, 17, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, she was almost like our, our, you know, like that degree of separation from everyone in punk rock came through Joan. Like, you know Joan, I know Joan, so we're friends. Yeah. <laughs> it must have been really interesting, like, to be in that scene as it's sort of building up. Can you remember some of the either shows that you saw or people that you met that ended up being, you know, like maybe they were just, you know, locals or whatever at the time, but ended up being somebody that was so influential both on the scene and outside of the scene. What are some of your best memories from that? Like X. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a whole subset of us who are all really into poetry. And uh, both John Doe and Xene, I mean, that's how they, they met at a, at a poetry uh, thing that they yeah. used to go to. And they started playing mostly like at backyard parties in East L.A. Um, and it was, a, they started a little later than everyone else, but uh, it was really compelling. Because they, they started, mixed. you mean age-wise or you mean time-wise? Time-wise. Time, time they wise, were probably okay. like a, a year or so behind the initial um, bunch of people. But they'd really gotten their thing together, you know, as poets, John and Xene. Yeah. 
And then just the, let's just add music part. And you know, just from the first time you saw them, it was really, really compelling. And you and they were the first band to actually get a real record deal on a real label that paid real money with a comma in it. Uh, before the Go-Go's? Yeah, they did? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. About a year and a half before the Go-Go's. Okay. Um, wow. And it all happened about the same time. And I could probably, you know... I could probably be off on the chronology, but I mean, it was like pretty huge. The Go-Go's did put out records independently. I mean, and so did X. There was this um, local label called Danger House and they put out records. They put out the single adult books by Yes, uh, by X. They put out the Avengers, the Dills. They put out Black Randy. I mean, you know, just your local guys who had a little more money than the rest of us. And the same with Slash. And there was just right. this huge cauldron of creative people because no major label was going to release anybody's records. Yeah. So it all had to be independent. They, you had to do it yourself. And um, X, I think, was the first uh, band that got the attention of a major label based on um, the groundwork they were able to lay on their own with, with the help of the scene. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that's when you knew it's like, yeah, everything that we've been investing our time, our blood, sweat and tears in, it's going to blow up. And and it did right after and that. And it did. Point. I mean, yeah. really, you know, and then when the go-go's, um, you know, when their single, We Got the Beat, was finally released. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was like an atomic bomb. Right. Right. Yeah, it absolutely was. Yeah. That but, you know, prior to that... that um, you know, it's like the Germs were one of the L.A. bands that, one of the first L.A. bands to have a record out. And it was on a label called What Records, which is still run by a guy named Chris Ashford. And I think he worked at Peaches at the time. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, it's just that he liked them. He recorded them, put out their record uh, forming, and um, they used a, a photo I took of the band in their very first rehearsal in pat smears mom's garage oh man wow <laughs> on bundy drive in, in West los angeles and like the whole block that he lives on just doesn't exist anymore because it was you know it was raised to widen the boulevard oh mm, man. yeah i know so that's you crazy know, you're you're Oh, go ahead. Black there, yeah, you know, on the street, <laughs> on on this ground, you know, Pat, Pat Smear <laughs> exactly recorded, you know. Your photos got used on a lot of album covers and album albums, I should say. Not maybe not just covers, but inside also. Right. Well, there was a small handful of us on the scene, you know, basically taking pictures of our friends, either as favors or because you know we were just you know, building up our scrapbooks, our, our personal memories. And I mean, there were some people who were serious photojournalists and that's what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I never even considered that. I wanted to be an English teacher. I oh wanted my. to sit around. I wanted to sit around and discuss poetry with people and get paid for it. Wow. Wow. That's, that's interesting. That's just what I wanted to do. You know. <laughs> yeah, man. Wow. That took a turn, didn't it? <laughs> Well, there's no money in it. No. There's no money in teaching at any level, you know, elementary yeah. school, high school, college. I mean, and if you're teaching at the college level, boy, it's like the competition is fierce. And everything you have to do to like, keep your job, it's it, and it just pays pathetically. 
And I've made more money, you know, like working at the Whiskey A Go Go. Yeah. What What year did you start working there? Um, well, I would, they would let me work there when I was on breaks from school. So I'd work, you know, like a two, two weeks or three months or, you know, six months or whatever little wow. gaps. And they did that for a lot of, for a lot of people. You know, I worked in the box office. I worked in the office during the daytime. They mm-hmm. even, you know, let me book some shows on like Monday nights, local band shows. Oh, really? So you got to book some of your friends' bands into yeah. the Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Pleasant did the same thing, too. And then, you know, that led to her like booking at clubs like Raji's and maybe the Cafe de Grand. But I mean, she did, you know, she may have given L7 their first gig. OK, I know you said you gave the the bangs their first gig. right? Yeah, their their first mainstream gig, because, oh, okay. you know, like X, they were playing, you know, like house parties and, you know, just little uh basically pop-up gigs at, um, Mm. you know, venues that, you know, like three bands would get together and go, let's do a show. But, um, yeah, it was their first gig at a, you know, a mainstream venue that advertised. Which was, and that, so that was the whiskey That was the whiskey. Yeah. And they were on a bill with, um, the Salvation Army and the last, the last are from St. St. Pedro. And they were one of those plays well with everybody you know they were like a power pop band and yet you could put them on a bill with um you know whatever mike watt was doing and it made sense they just got along with everyone their music worked well they were great guys and so i put this uh bill together at the suggestion of my friend the late gary stewart who i i met when I was 17 and he was working at the Rhino record store on Westwood Boulevard. I was going to UCLA. That's where I would shop for my records. And he turned me on to so much music. Like I, he turned me on to Elvis Costello before I read about Elvis Costello in the English papers. Mm. <laughs> wow. And the jam and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, when he said, yeah, you should like put these bands together. It'd be really good for you. And I did. And there were people lined up, you know, like at seven o'clock around the block. And they were all lined up for the bangs. Wow, that's so neat. That's really interesting. I I love, I mean, for the listeners who don't know, the bangs ended up being the bangles. Um, I love a lot of their early stuff. I mean, it's got such, I mean, they were, they were good songwriters just right out of the gate. Um, I think because they're just real music nerds. Yes, you know, exactly. They're all like superb players. Yeah. Superb harmonizers. Oh, and, gosh. Yeah, they were very influenced by the Beatles, Simon and Garfunkel, and all those writers and, and harmonizers. And, mm-hmm. and it's just ingrained in them. Um, I, I love everything that they did. But that early stuff, I, I just find really, really to be so much fun. Yeah, I love them still to this day. Yeah. And um the only thing about them that that isn't evergreen but is a great time capsule thing is the you know, it they were big in the eighties and yeah. none of us dressed well in the eighties. <laughs> none none of us did. <laughs> you know, not you, not me, not Madonna, right. not Santa Hoffs. Yeah. <laughs> I, I saw them just uh maybe three years ago um here in atlanta 
and they were fabulous. And they played a lot of that early stuff, which I was very excited about. I was very glad to hear them do still doing a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, their voices together are just, yeah. they're just so beautiful. I mean, it's the two sisters, so you've got that, like, blood harmony thing going exactly. on. And, and they blend well, so well with Sue's voice. And, yeah, it's it's incredible. Yeah. And, you know, they're just their choices, their taste in music. Yes. Yes. Did, did you see Blondie when they were, you know, early in their career? Um, I saw them the first time they came to Los Angeles. Oh, that's awesome. Um, it was in February of 1977. Uh, it was an incredible two-week run at the Whiskey. The first week, it was Blondie with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers opening. Oh, and really? And the second week was the Ramones headlining with Blondie opening. And I was there at every single show. <laughs> Blondie, um, and Blondie and the Ramones together must have been an experience. It, it well, it was just like New York exported itself to yes. us, <laughs> right? You know, but wow. uh, and Blondie had a different lineup at the time. They had Gary Valentine playing bass, um, Jimmy Destry, who doesn't play with the band anymore. Yeah, was uh, playing keyboards, and um, but the core, you know, Debbie, Chris, and Clem. Mm-hmm were there um and just like just right out of the gate they they were on it you know they looked cool they got um half their set was covers i mean i just remember hearing them play palisades park Mm -hmm. um and they were just fun they were so much fun yeah you know how you say like they you, you got new york exported to you well that's i mean i think a lot of la bands would do the same they'd come here it would sort of be like a trade-off. I mean, I know. Remember, even later on in the sort of uh, late, like the new wave-ish kind of scene, and the, even the hair metal scene, like it would be like switch switching places. You know, we'd get like Fishbone and you know whoever, and then we'd send Murphy's Law over there. You know, <laughs> or the Chili Peppers would come here, and I mean, you know, it was like that whole. It, it was so fun to see what was going on in another scene other than your own scene. You know, because you kind of get insulated in a you know in a way, but it, you know that's just how a scene builds anyway. But um. right, right, um, yeah. I was always very excited when um, bands from out of town would come because uh, it also made you feel like there was some kind of like global unity in your generation. You know mm-hmm. that you you weren't alone out there. Like yeah, I'm I'm the only person who's angry about this <laughs> or oh, yeah. happy about this or into this, you know. So it was very exciting. Yeah. I don't know how familiar you are with the New York punk scene as far as like being a part of it. What do you think the differences are between the LA scene and the New York scene? Um I think that there are probably more similarities than there are differences. But what I think the key thing is that Los Angeles's claim to fame in terms of pop culture is noir. And we have the um, movie industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, and, and New York, you know, when punk rock happened, you know, when it really blew up, even when it was building up, I mean, this, the city was broke. The president of the United States couldn't care less about what happened to New York. Mm. Um, you know, 
there people were living in squats. Um, then you had the son of Sam. I mean, it oh, was gosh. a yeah. dangerous place to be. Mm-hmm. And so if you were a young, free-spirited person who wanted to express yourself, I mean, it's not that you gravitated to punk rock. It's just that like, you became this thing that became punk rock. Mm. And Los Angeles, it, it kind of in a parallel with England, you know, like they were all responding to everyone, you know, again, being poor and being on the dole and having mm-hmm. no future. Well, Los Angeles is a town of smoke and mirrors and the glamour industry. And the what I think the key element of noir is like the darkness amid all this sunshine. And so that's what we bring. And it's like the X song, Adult Books. I was going to bring up X for that. Completely mm-hmm. captures that, you know. It's all Raymond Chandler and, <laughs> and the postman always rings twice and... and half the women are Mildred Pierce, you know? <laughs> no, I mean, it's really in, in, in L.A. punk rock. It, it, I think it was largely driven by strong women, mm-hmm. you know, just, just like Mildred Pierce. That's something I also want, we really wanted to get into was, you know, the the role of women in that scene being innovators and leaders and, I mean, so many women were doing so many cool things like you and Spock and the slits, exine, polystyrene, go-go's. I mean, there's so many people. And uh, I think it's really important to recognize that. I don't know if any, I don't know if that was so um, apparent in in other punk scenes, like in England. I mean, not that there was nobody, but there, I just think LA might've been a better, a better place for that. Well, um, I think that, you know, I mean, many people would say, well, this was the rallying cry of punk or this or that. The other thing to me, the rallying cry, at least of all the women in punk, is that like we do not take no for an answer. That's why the whole DIY movement blossomed. It's like, can our band play here? No. Okay, we'll just create a venue of our own. Mm. Will you play my uh, record on your radio? No. Okay, then we're just going to, Find find someone who does. Will mm-hmm. Will you give us a record deal? No. Okay, we'll just make our own. Right. You know. So yeah. um, it was just like we don't take no for an answer. As you did with your fanzine, I, I suppose. Right. Well, that's that's the whole basis of why the fanzine even started because nobody was um, giving editorial space to the scene. You know. Uh, yeah. With with words or pictures. So you and Pleasant started the fanzine? Well, Pleasant started it with this friend of ours, Randy Kay, who passed away a few years ago. He was an A&R guy. He, be- he became an A&R guy at um, Slash. He signed Violent Femmes, okay. among many other bands. But um, yeah, they went to Beverly Hills High School together and they were, you know, like really bored. <laughs> there were a lot of kids at <laughs> Beverly High who had bands and... <laughs> And they would go, you know, go see them and like, yeah, we should just, you know, write reviews about them. And so no local papers would write them. So it's like, oh, they started a a magazine. And so, oh, well, we have all this writing. Oh, we need some pictures. (laughs) Call up our friends who take pictures. And so they used a lot of your photos. Right. And then it was born. And because I had a car and Pleasant didn't, 
we became like, you know, like the A team, you know? Yeah. The, the writer and the photographer. <laughs> right. We, you know, it's like I drove us to all our interviews and. Oh, that's so cool. Is there, is there any, uh, I guess, is there any pictures to, in your collection that really, that really stand out that really kind of, that you always like come back to? Like I was thinking of the one I told you about with the Billy Idol, but is there, is there anything that really encapsulates that, that moment in time for you? Well, Billy Idol is just really a fabulous subject to photograph. I mean, you know, like what great bone structure and perfect hair, you know? Yes. Um, we spent a week with him when he came to Los Angeles to do some promotion in advance of the release of the First Generation X album. And we, we just took him everywhere we went, you know? It's like, well, we're going to go shopping on Melrose. You want to come with us? And he did. And my favorite picture from the whole thing is just this inadvertent portrait of him. He's looking in a shop window. I saw and, that one. Yeah. Right. And his, his eyes are kind of downcast, but he's sort of looking in my direction. But then there's this, his whole reflection is in the mirror or is in the glass. And I don't know what compelled a 20-year-old me to take that picture. Yeah. But I like it. And there's a time capsule element of it because of his haircut, because of his clothing. Um, but then there's also a timelessness about, about it because, you know, I only shot in black and white. Because, you know, color was just not in the budget. Okay, so that's why. This, <laughs> I was wondering. Silver tone to it. And so it's it's almost like it's just timeless. And I it, it really captures the past and the present and the future all in one thing. There are other pictures that I think also have like time capsule elements to them. Like when, when Pleasant and I took Billy to the airport for him to fly back for him to fly back to London. Back then the security at an airport was ridiculous. I mean, you'd have Hare Krishna's, you know, in the departure <laughs> lounge trying to, you know, get money from you. And um yeah, we we went with him all the way to the gate. Yeah. And so I took pictures of that. And so, you know, like taking pictures in an airport you can't do anymore because you you if you're not flying you can't be there. And uh, he was greeted by a lady who had this big shopping bag and she just walked up to him and said, you're famous. She starts, uh, you know, like touching his hair and pulling up his <laughs> collar and like, who is this lady? And she was harmless, but, you know, she was like, just walk up to a stranger and said, you're famous. And if you're That's not funny. famous, you're going to be famous. So <laughs> I a took a picture of this and... What I didn't notice when I, you know, took the picture was that everybody's eyes are on someone else. <laughs> you know, it's just like, all, you know, like the three of us who took Billy to the airport, they're all, everyone's like, someone's looking at Billy, someone's looking at the lady. <laughs> and wow. It's those things you notice later. Like, oh, everyone's mm -hmm. looking at someone else. Yeah. When you're talking about documenting these experiences and you you talked about growing up with a family that documented everything that happened i'm just this is sort of a a strange question but i'm just kind of wondering if you think that there's a difference between growing up in that environment and now in the cell phone age 
Do you think that um, that there's still that same sense of when you can just show someone your phone and it's just like a quick scroll of photos as opposed to collecting these things and putting them in an album and things like that? Is, is there a is there a fundamental shift in the way that we think of documenting experiences? Well, I think now it's the, the the whole thing is like pictures or it didn't happen. Yeah, that's right? yeah. Right. Yeah. And and so for me, that's partially why I started. I mean, even before punk rock, that's why I started bringing my camera to concerts. I went to see Elton John at the Hollywood Bowl on September 7th, 1973. And I just remember it because the date's on the T-shirt. Um, and he... Uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road had not yet been released, yet he played most of the album there. Wow. Mm. And then when you were leaving the Hollywood Bowl, there were two people handy, giving away T-shirts for free. They had a picture, you know, silkscreened of Elton wearing a top hat, wearing a tuxedo and a cane with wow. the Hollywood Bowl and the date. And they oh gave gosh. a T-shirt for every person who was in the car. Oh, my God. Wow. That doesn't happen anymore. No. And he was, like, was explaining this to someone at school. It's like, you didn't go. <laughs> and so the, the following month, I went to see the, the faces. Oh, wow. And I took a movie camera. Mm. Because that's just, I had, a, my parents had a movie camera and there was always film. So that's what I took. Wow. So I was like super eight film of the faces. Wow. I would love to see that. <laughs> well, it, 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 I have bequeathed it to the University of, of Southern California, um, Hugh Hefner Archive in their film school, because, you know, they'll keep it from deteriorating. Yeah. <laughs> how, how big is the archive that you have, Teresa? I mean, you must have tons and tons of, of I, material. You know, and I lost a bunch of stuff that I had stored in a place that, got drowned by Hurricane oh. Sandy. Oh, wow. No, and at first, I was heartbroken about that for years. And then I heard the Laurie Anderson album, Landfall. And and I heard her talking on NPR about that whole experience. Mm. And um, it just made me feel a lot better about it after listening to her. And, you know, her voice is so calm. Yes. You know, she lost all these props and instruments and all kinds of things. And I just wow. thought, well, you know, if Lori Anderson can get over it. I <laughs> <laughs> but you still have, there still must be a lot. Oh, I, I have bags of undeveloped film. Yeah. Also. Oh, gosh. And I, well, I found a place in Canada that specializes in developing, uh, you know, like dead stock film stock. And I mean, it's really expensive. It takes a long time, but you know, eventually mm. every, everything will be processed. Wow. That's going to be an undertaking. That, that there was so you did put up a batch of like new old photos though. Recently. New scans, right? New scans. Yes. Okay. New scans. And was because you said you only shot in black and white, but there's a color photo of Josie Cotton. Right. No, I did shoot a lot of color. I would like, okay. for, you know, like every ten rolls of black and white film, I'd have a roll of color. Okay. I mean the the reason I didn't shoot color as much is that, um, you know, black and white, you can print yourself. Color, you'd have to get it duplicated. And it's just, it's all very costly. Um, it's just the scanner that I have. 
scans yeah. slides better than it scans negative strips. So yeah. a lot of the new scans you saw are in color because I've scanned every single slide I ever took. <laughs> I see. Because that Josie, that Josie Cotton photo for me, that might be one of my favorite of yours. I don't know what oh. it is, but that's just like I stare at it and I just look at it and I'm just like, it's such an interesting and like, it's like a fluid photo. Well, she was just such a great performer too. And her look is really timeless. You think, oh yeah, she's just like, she could be on Laverne and Shirley or, yes. or she could be a fear Rucci model mm-hmm. or she could be in an Italian movie. You know, she could be Anna Mignani's best friend in a movie. I mean, she's just, she's timeless and she's mm-hmm. beautiful and she was a great dancer on stage and probably still is, you know? Yeah. So a lot of times it's it's not even you. It's just that you're witnessing some great talent or some great image projector. You're just lucky enough to have a camera in front of you. Well, I, I got to say, I think it's probably a little bit more than luck on your part. Every photo that I've looked at of yours, the composition is always perfect. There's always something that is like, if it's a concert shot, the light is like right on the person there. You've captured them at the, the perfect moment where they're doing, you know, something that really, you know, conveys the whole, you know, show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, it really, really amazing stuff. Um, I read somewhere a, a quote that you said that you took um, the ends of cinema reels mm-hmm. and and used to re like package them in the SLR thing. Was, was mm-hmm. that because of cost, or was that to yeah. get a certain look, or no, both? Yeah, it's it's because of cost, um, and um, also I shot. I did a lot of work as a DP, so mm-hmm. you know you you just end up with these ends, and you could roll them up and then you could take them to Technicolor and have them process <laughs> That's so, so interesting. That's Someone cool, else's yeah. dime. Wow. But, um, I think a difference between people who shoot with analog cameras and people who shoot with digital cameras and the, the big difference between, you know, like the 70s and the present day is that now you can just keep shooting and shooting and shooting, you yeah. know, and then mm-hmm. pop in another disc and shoot some more. Yeah. Um, back then, you know, you had a finite number of frames. Right. And you weren't going to waste it, right? Yeah, and you couldn't you go delete you had to that. Wait, <laughs> you had to wait for the moment. And exactly. uh, that's why uh, back then the shows, they would do two sets. They would do an early set and a late set. So I would go for the entire night. And in the first set, i just watch. I would enjoy mm-hmm. myself. But I'd study the light cues. I'd study their moves. And if I already knew their music, then it was even easier because you'd think, okay, well, this is something they're going to, you know, make a point of, or, mm-hmm. you know, emphasize or whatever. Emphasize, mm-hmm. right. And so the seconds in your mind, you're thinking, well, I'm going to photograph this song and this song. And hmm. and so now, I mean, even just anybody with their phone can just go and, yeah, you know, they could shoot a video of the whole concert and then go through frame by frame and go, I like yeah. that shot. Yeah. Um, so that's, that is the big difference between That's the cheating. <laughs> well, I think it's cheating, and obviously you agree with me, but it's just like the, the methods of production yeah. have changed. Yeah, technology moves everything forward, mm-hmm. whether it's music production or whether it's songwriting or whether it's photography, everything mm-hmm. changes. I'm yeah. scared about AI. Me too. 
Look, I saw 2001. Nothing good can come from it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Kubrick told us this decades ago. He told us many things decades yes, ago. Yes, he did. Many yes. things. I mean, people would be wise to, you know, like maybe convince their local art house to do a Stanley Kubrick complete. Oh, hell mm. yeah. Yeah, that's like, Don't mess with 16 year old girls. <laughs> I mean, you know, like Lolita is many things, but Cautionary Tale, I think, is number one. <laughs> wow. It doesn't end well, you know. <laughs> Our co-host Rob had a, um, had a question that he wanted us to interject. Um, he wanted to know if there was an L.A. band that you wish had gotten more attention from that scene. And he uh, has one in mind. Yeah, he if, has one. If you mind. don't name it, I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> oh, Okay. Well, um, I really like the Alley Cats, the early punk era Alley Cats. They're from a town called Lomita, which is in the South Bay. And um, they were a power trio. And I just think they were fierce and ferocious. I really, really, really like them a lot. Mm. And they played, you know, lobotomy benefits for us. Mm -hmm. um, I think while they were um, in existence, the bags were great. Mm. Um, I think really prescient in many ways. Is that Alice and that's Alice Bag? I mean, just really and and Pat Morrison, um, really prescient and uh, early feminists without like being, you know, like saying if we're feminists, it's like no, we're like two women in a band, and this is what we have to say. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, and then from another era, you know, the Bangs era that paisley underground era there's that small cluster of bands that have all gotten a little attention you know like the bangles being primarily yeah. the one who got the most attention but there was this like really psychedelic band called um the rain parade oh yeah really yeah, really that. like oh man dream yeah. syndicate right. yeah yeah, well, yeah. You know, and i think the dream syndicate are really well respected Mm, you know, um, yeah. I think they've definitely gotten their due and they keep playing and and making records. So I would just say they're, they're little brothers that Rain Parade could use a boost. I was a big fan of the three o'clock. I love the three o'clock. Oh, you know, yeah. um, Michael Corsio was, is credited with coming up with the names of Paisley Underground. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and Danny Benair. Their drummer, he was in The Quick, which is one of my favorite bands, that I liked them so much because they reminded me of Sparks. You know, and, <laughs> and you just you brought go. up the magic word, Teresa. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, our we two, are Sparks fans here. Our two co-hosts that aren't here are major Sparks fans, <laughs> and they find a way to mention them every episode. Oh, well, I mean, they're, you know, what's so great about Sparks is that they defy categorization. Every That's single true. album sounds completely different. Yes, and they're genius, every single yes. one of those ridiculous albums. Um, right. Oh, my God. I saw them many times when they were on their tour last year. It's just oh. like, yeah. oh, I can drive that and come back the same day. I'm out. I'll buy a ticket. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I just, they're, man, I just, I remember their album covers, too. From, um, that's why I ended up going to work at Island Records, because of, you know, like bands like Sparks and Roxy Music and, and Eno. Um, yeah. I just, 
You were there like, right before me. So you were there because I was at an island starting in like 86, but on the East Coast. Right. You were and I, I left in 84. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it, mm. like that was the whole thing. Like a lot of people are attracted to island because big reggae heads. And it's like, you know, I like Bob Marley as much as the next person. But to me, it was all the weird, quirky stuff. That, yeah, they like, did have a lot of weird, quirky stuff. I love that true. weird, quirky stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and like Sparks, like the Kimono My House. Yeah. It's like, that's a really bad taste album cover that I really like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then Indiscreet. And then what's the, is that the one with a plane crash? Uh-huh. Or what's the one they're on a boat and they're bound and gagged? I, I mean, you know, it's just... <laughs> Incidentally, the, the the band that our friend Rob was thinking of when he was wondering which band you, you would have wished had gotten more exposure, his his pick is the Weirdos. Oh man, you know their music still stands the test of time. Like we got the Neutron Ball. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, whenever I hear it, it sounds fresh, and it's you know it's yeah. a, you know it's a constant threat. Hmm. I love the weirdos, man. They were really, really great. Um, it was uh, after a while, though, it got really hard to go to their shows because, you know, when the slam dancing. Got, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just like I'm five foot two. I can't really. <laughs> you know, there are just there are some re- harsh realities of life. Where I right. <laughs> get in the way. And and for right. me, that that was it. Um, you know, um, yeah, the weirdos. But I don't think they're forgotten. I, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, thanks to guys like Flea. I mean, he, he really yeah. keeps he really keeps the punk rock alive. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Every Rob, chance he gets, he he pays homage. Rob was also wondering um, how that really early scene influenced bands that were just a little bit later, like. Um, missing Persons or Oingo Boingo. And, well, I guess I feel like Oingo Boingo sort of was part of that early. I think that they were. I most definitely think Oingo Boingo. Missing Persons, I just, I don't even, I, I think they took a lot of fashion sense. Yeah. But um, maybe not in that, that as much music. Punk rock, but it just seems like their music was a little more sophisticated. Yeah. You know, like. Proggy. They're very proggy. I was going to say their drummer could go play, you know, play an 11. You know? Yeah, he is amazing. Yeah, it's just like a punk drummer is like, what, you want me to play in three? No, one, <laughs> two, three, four. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, the Bozios, I thought, were just like really, really sophisticated, mm. you know, in terms of what they were capable of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they're amazing people. Um, I want to talk just uh, a, a little bit about the exhibitions that you've done. Okay. Um, I, I'm really interested to know how the shows were put together, how you curated the pieces that were going to go on display, and um, for the different venues, uh, how you had to modify the show, either for size of venue or to tailor it to the audience that would be coming to it or you know anything like that. Well, I started out doing them like record store in stores, you know, like band in stores. And I um, would just take prints and I'd hang a clothesline and I'd clamp with binder clips. That's and awesome. I would um, work with the, um, with the record store people and like get like their, you know, like their punk section and 
And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, I'm going to show these pictures of the Ramones, so you should display, you know, you can move some Ramones records this way. Yeah, yeah. You know, the whole marketing kind of thing. Um, and uh, the first couple of rounds I did, it was just like Punk Turns 30, and it's just sort of like, you know, L.A. Punk Rock's greatest hits and mm-hmm. some nationally known people. And then I honed it down to a theme because there are lots of great live punk rock pictures from all over the world from any number of photographers whether it's someone who's out there with a camera for the first time or you know someone who did it for a living there's a lot of really great live concert pictures but i had something that lots of other people didn't have and that was access Mm -hmm. and so that's when i put together the unguarded moments thing which if you know you haven't caught on is the title of a song by the church oh i didn't catch on okay (laughs) (laughs) but um now i do yeah but i mean i just i always liked that concept of the unguard because that's what those pictures were like people didn't acknowledge you know like like they forgot you were a photographer or that you had a camera there because you were at home with them or in the recording studio or in the airport or driving around in a car um Mm -hmm. in a hotel room just just doing you know shopping really everyday things and so i did that i based that theme and then i would um you know like if i was going to new york i would go heavy with the the blondie and the ramones and the television and you know people from new york and yeah i go to other cities like i went to memphis i went heavy in the cramps because mm. they had alex chilton do their record and um yeah it's just just like you know, just like working in a record company, <laughs> yeah. trying to push your songs to radio. Yeah. I, I love how your photos are, are like, are so um, like slice of life kind of photos. I mean, they're not posed or do you prefer shooting, you know, that kind of thing, like in an airport or whatever, or do you prefer maybe shooting bands live or do you have a preference? Do you care? I mean, I like to be the fly on the wall. Um, mm-hmm. You know, D.A. Pennebaker was my favorite filmmaker. Mm, He invented the rock documentary. And I am quite fortunate to have produced um, a film with him. Um, Oh, wow. Well, I I worked with him to restore a lot of the footage from Monterey Pop. And then we did a retrospective 30 years after the fact. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was like going to film school. Oh, gosh. And he was great. And, And... and he always let me pick his brain about things, you know, like I asked him a million questions about don't look back. He yeah. goes, you know, at, at after the first couple of days, like Bob Dylan is just used to him being there and he just forgets mm-hmm. that there's a camera. Right. And, you know, that's why he has a hissy fit when like, who broke the glass? <laughs> or when he tells a guy from, I mean, you know, when he puts on the Bob Dylan show, you know, it's like, hmm. I don't need to read Time magazine. I'll tell you what's real. It's a hobo throwing up in the gut. <laughs> you know, and part of it you got to credit, you know, Dylan for being able to, you know, like embody that character he's decided to be for mm. Time magazine and, you know, not not lose it. <laughs> right. As he's being filmed. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that made a huge imprint on me. I've wow. probably seen Don't Look Back a hundred times. Wow. That must have been such an experience to have somebody like that, to have access to their 
process and to their their thinking. God, that that must be incredible. Uh, he was incredible, and and I I met him. He was filming the a one woman show performance where the 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 sole actor she's the mother of a coworker of mine, and so we got to go to the after party, and um, we met all of his friends, who included like the guy who was the head of the SDS, whose name I forgot, and then. Uh, a lady who was a um, literary agent for Kurt Vonnegut. I, <laughs> he oh, just, wow. he, you know, ran in some really great circles. And, and I always asked him like, so when you did the war room, I mean, you must've known that Bill Clinton was going to win the nomination. How did mm. you know? And he just said, you know, I just got a feeling that this is the guy I have to follow. Oh, Wow. <laughs> I wanted to know how how you feel about people and and the, with iPhones at concerts today and, and 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 just how does that make you feel as a photographer? Is that something that bothers you, or is it something you feel is is taking it forward? You know, technology kind of. Oh, which you know, as a photographer, I don't care. I mean, people got to do what they're gonna do. But mm-hmm. as an audience member, I'm really annoyed. When yeah, I, yeah. When yeah. You're never it. gonna, you're never gonna watch that. The guy was filming the whole concert. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's like, why don't you just experience it? You know, I, just, I agree. Like, you know, my my live music photography just really waned, even back when I was like, you know, 22. Um, because I just wanted to, and that's why a lot of times I would only shoot a single roll of film. It's like I got 36 frames mm. in this band, you know, this is how I'm going to remember them. I've shot one mm-hmm. roll of film of the Ramones, just one mm. roll of film, <laughs> you know, as opposed to, you know, like maybe hundreds of blondie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think that at the end of the day, I mean, a band has a finite number of iconic moves. Yeah. <laughs> and you should go yeah. and see them. Like, I mean, if you're a concert photographer, you should go and see them and study them and know, get yeah. into their music, learn their music, get those iconic moves, um, you know, save a, you know, well, if you're shooting digital to save anything, but you know, there's going to be some surprise moment when, you know, some guest star comes on or, you know, something weird and out of the ordinary happens and, you know, you will be prepared for that, but can you just enjoy the show. I know. Just be present. I know. I mean, now a lot of times when I go to a show and I see people whipping out their phones, I actually take my phone out and take pictures of the phones. Yeah. (laughs) I have done that before. Yeah. In fact, Spock and I went to see, as a guest of her employer at the time, we went to see Foreigner play with the Nashville Symphony. Oh, cool. I mean, it's not really my cup of tea, but, you know, I was surprised that I knew every single song. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I drive in the car and listen to the radio. Um, but uh, it was insane because like, all with the these phone. people just like take this, like, just enjoy it. This is like, come on. Yeah. Yeah, it's annoying to be an audience member, I think, to have the, all the light around you, too. And to yeah. Just- I, I will mm-hmm. take my phone, take maybe like 10 pictures and that's it for the whole thing. I just, you know, I, but I don't understand people who stand there with the thing up for the, the whole, whole time. show. Right. I admit when I went to see Blondie and the Damned a few months ago, I did 
I did take some pictures with my phone. Mm-hmm. Um, like the damn staging is just so incredible that I just mm. like want to remember it. You know, yes. it was like red, and then then they have that you know like gothic, damned, and then you know Dave Vanian <laughs> comes out, and and you know it's him, but he's in shadow, and it's like that's picture worthy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then exactly. at, the, at the end, Blondie's encore, they. Um, we're doing Heart of Glass, and they had a disco ball going, which was pretty exciting. <laughs> well, I, you know. But, you know, Glenn Matlock is, is playing with them, and so um, they did Heart of Glass, and then they sort of mer- morphed into um, I Feel Love, I guess, as they're looking yeah. to Giorgio Moroder. And yeah. then at the end, they ended with this sort of instrumental bit of God Save the Queen. <laughs> cool. That's so fantastic. When, um, yeah, it's just at the, at the very end of Heart of Glass, I thought, okay, maybe this song is going to be over. So the, the very last, ooh, ooh, oh, 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 I just turned on my little video and I just kept it on because then they went into a Giorgio Moroder thing. It's like, mm-hmm. well, this is cool. Yeah. And exactly. I just like let it go. And I figured, you know, this is the encore. No, nobody's, I'm not bothering anyone. Right. Then they did that, you know, God Save the Queen. Boy, that was cool. <laughs> I'm glad I wow. got that. But, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But you know that was it. The da- speaking of the damned, that was the first. Um, I think it was Spock was saying she got the first show for the damned over here. The solo solo show is that correct? That is correct. You know they were. Um, I think they were the first English band to play in the United States. The first English punk band to play in the United States. That was April of nineteen seventy seven, and um, they were the support band for television. And, you know, the damned are great and they're high energy and Brian James is as good, at least as Richard Lloyd on guitar. (laughs) Wonderful guitarist, Brian James. His solo stuff is great, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at some point, television was not having it and they just threw him off the tour. And so they were in L.A. So Spock and the rest of Backstage Pass helped the damned with lodging. You know, oh, they cool. between between the members of Backstage Pass, it, the Damned all had some place to stay, mm-hmm. and they um, they got the Damned a gig. You know where I know the Damned and some of the other like the some of the bands on Island Records and stuff like that. I know them. I'm curious to know if you know this. I I know them from a, a British television show called The Young Ones. Oh yeah! Oh, oh my that's, god! That's where that was my introduction to so much music that I would never have heard before. That that show is ridiculous. God, I love that so show so much. much. Yeah. So between 1976 and 1986, I would go spend a couple months a year in London because Steve Bader's from the Dead Boys was one of my best friends, and he was doing the same thing. Mm. And we would watch the young ones. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Oh, yeah. It was just, it was so great. Yeah, and Steve was roommates with um, Michael Monroe from Hanoi Rocks. I love who I love. Mm. Yep. You know, and, and so that really helped uh, Steve's glam period up there toward in the late, in the later 80s. You oh, know, yeah. The, the Lords of the New Church. Yeah. Those two yeah. spent more time doing makeup in the bathroom. <laughs> than any woman that I know. In fact, when we moved, we moved from one apartment to another. We had Michael just dress up in a, in a kimono. And it's just like, don't say anything. Don't just, and we had a taxi. We just like moved in taxi. 
But we weren't moving furniture, just lots of suitcases. And we moved in a taxi, and, and the taxi driver just thought Michael was a woman. That's fantastic. You know, because he is beautiful. He is beautiful, bone structure, like that perfect. bone structure, and he had the Marilyn Monroe hair and those lips, and he was wearing red <laughs> lipstick, which is just don't talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they would say, like, what about your friend here? And I went, from Finland. No. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Because, you know, he has a really deep voice. I mean, that would just be like we have gotten thrown out of the cab, you know? Oh, that's funny. Oh, my gosh. I also want to just quickly ask about, uh, I think also, was it you or Spock that helped the the propi- proprietor of the mass club, the legendary mass club, get the lease for the club? Oh, that was Backstage Pass. I think was it was Spock. Ma- Marina, okay. their uh, keyboard player. Okay. They, they are all just a smidgen older than us, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, just a smidgen. A smidgen. And yes. So, you know, like they were 21 <laughs> when, when we were 18, you know, and then when we were like 21, they were 25 and they could rent cars. So, right. you know, they had that going for them and, you know. So how did they uh, help him? Or her was it? I don't. It was. Know. It's a man, Brendan okay. Mullen, who who passed away about ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they just like how did they facilitate that? Uh, lease well, I situation? think they co-signed because oh. he's from Scotland and he had no job. Mm. So it's like, well, this 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 room is going to be my job, and it's like, well, mm-hmm. that doesn't fly. If you're <laughs> this room, <laughs> this room is going to be my job. That's right. Change the world, really. You just got to trust me. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be real big. <laughs> so you know what's in that space now is uh, World of Wonder, the production company that produces RuPaul's Drag Race. Oh, mm-hmm. nice. I did not know that, but that's yeah. cool. Wow. Well, at least it's being put to very good use still. I know. I would just, you know, especially with what's going on with uh, here in Tennessee – Oh my God! Uh, it's ridiculous. I today yeah. I I looked up that Saturday Night Live skit where RuPaul reads teaches to read at the library. I love oh that. God. Funniest thing I've it, ever it seen. So funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, it's hilarious. Yeah. So, am I wrong? And in, in, uh, I'm thinking that I saw recently that you have something coming up in Chattanooga. Yes, I do. I don't have the date confirmed okay. yet i mean they, they it's a place called stoveworks and i'm gonna have an exhibit and a talk and slideshow it's sort of uh it's almost like a class master class in punk rock and nice. actually it's, a, it's sort of an analog versus digital world type thing you know because back then when you when you were a punk band on tour you had maps you had rolls of quarters and dimes and nickels mm. because there was no gps you had to have maps. Bob right. and I because also had that when we were on tour, and that wasn't even right. punk rock days. <laughs> right, right, right. And, yeah. you know, and, and no cell phones, so Nothing. you need all the coins, you know. Wow. Yeah. Triple so A car, yeah. Yeah. So I just, I wanted to, you know, bring up stories. Also, I have this really funny picture. My college roommate and I were going, driving up to San Francisco to see David Bowie. <laughs> And her Volkswagen broke down on Highway 5, which is, you know, just goes through nowhere, you know, farmland in California. Wow. And Mm. like, you know, back then they still thought, oh, 
Volkswagen communist car. Nobody knew how to fix it. <laughs> right. So anyway, we had to get it towed somewhere. And then the tow truck broke down. Oh, oh no. So the tow truck had to get towed while towing her car. Right. <laughs> anyway, I took pictures of the whole thing. And so I just wanted to show it's like so this is what happens when you can't call an Uber. <laughs> exactly. We ended up going to some municipal airport and flying to San Francisco. Because that's what your father's master card comes in. That's, that's an emergency. That's mm-hmm. right. That constitutes an emergency. That's an emergency. And so, yeah, we flew to San Francisco. Then we flew back to L.A. And then she had to get her brother to drive her up to the middle of nowhere to hitch her car back to Los Angeles where they were able to fix the people's car. Nice. <laughs> I want to see those photos. <laughs> oh, you will. You will. Well, you know, Atlanta is just a two-hour drive away from Chattanooga. So Guess what? I've done shows in Atlanta. Where were you? <laughs> unaware. <laughs> but now that I know that you have something coming up in Chattanooga, I'm going to be watching for the date, and I'm going to do everything I can to get there because I've got friends in Chattanooga that I visit. Oh, and. And I know one of my friends in Chatta, it will be all about this show. So I'm well, looking forward to it. I keep you posted. Um, Fabulous. I have 30 feet of wall space. I figure that's going to be 60 images. I'm going to do a slideshow. Um, wow. That's exciting. I can't wait. I'm going to do a little talk. It's Q&A. So Pleasant and I um, were guest, regular guest lecturers and sort sort of adjuncts at UCLA um, Herb Alpert School of Music, and uh, we did a zine workshop, and then we wow. would talk about the difference, basically, between an analog and digital, you know, mm-hmm. production of pop culture. But at the end of the day, people just wanted to know, you know, what was Darby Crash like? Yeah, right. you know, <laughs> and so like. What did you put when you like hung out with Joan Jett? What did you guys do? I mean, that, that's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. They, they they wanted to find out, so we spun a storytelling show out of that, which we we haven't done since the pandemic mm-hmm. because you know you couldn't get all those people in a room. Are you yeah. going to revive that? Do you think, or you don't know? I think so. I think so. We're working with the Punk Rock Museum in Las Vegas. Maybe we'll do a residency. Very okay, cool. I was going to say, we're going to go on the road with that, or would it be at a place? Yeah. Oh, we were talking with someone about um, doing a, um, you know, sort of a streaming series with it. Yeah. Ooh, where, yes. You know, where they would they would import the talent for us. Yeah. That's <laughs> so a great we'll idea. I want to like pick it all up again. Teresa, I just want to say it's been such a pleasure meeting you and getting to know you for the past hour or so. It's been well, an, an absolute same. joy. Well, same here. And I can't wait for you guys to, you know, have this same chat with Spock. I know. We got to get her. We got to get her. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully I'll be meeting you in Chattanooga. I hope so. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I do I, go I, to Atlanta frequently. Um, okay. I have a really good friend who... Um, does shows at the probably soon to be gone star bar okay so okay and also you're gonna ever come up this way teresa you are you're oh, a yeah. On spa yeah oh yeah yeah you yeah. gotta let us know because bob and i are are in jersey but uh we can get to the city very easily <laughs> yeah most definitely 
Okay. Yeah. That'd be great. All right. Well, is there anything that you want to promote to our listeners? I really haven't got anything to promote, but okay. if you want to follow yes. my trials and tribulations and know about future things, I guess the best place is, you know, at punk turns 30 on Instagram. Okay. And, and that is three zero, not, not spelled out 30. Just right. Before, punk right? turns three zero. Yep. See amazing pictures there. That's for sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, once again, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We really had a great time with you. Yeah, this was amazing. Thanks. I, I had a good time too. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you hanging out with us. It was great. Thank you so much. And well, maybe we can have you on another time and tell us more of your stories. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. All right. All right. Well, we will let you get on with the rest of your evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. It was a pleasure meeting you. Love, hugs, and I'll spock hi, and I will uh, call and text, okay? Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Oh, she was fantastic. I know. Oh, my gosh. Good. So many Just good like the stories. tip of the iceberg, too, with her, you know? That's what, <laughs> you know, that's what I feel like. Stories there. Yeah. All right, so we're going to take a real quick break. We're going to be back in 30 seconds, and we'll wrap up our show then. So stick around. We'll be right back. What will you do when your child asks? What were Saturday morning cartoons? What were Saturday morning cartoons? What's wrong with you? Or will you handle it the right way? Sit down, baby girl. Let me introduce you to my friend, Mark McRae. Join Dan Clink and I on the Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast as we take a unique behind-the-scenes look at the history and dynamics of animation with plenty of laughs along the way. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast is a proud member of the ESO Network. All right, here we are, and we're going to start out with a little bit of listener feedback. This is some comments that we got from our Celebrity Records episode. So, Stephanie, why don't you take it away? Well, I have a couple uh, comments on Party All the Time by Eddie Murphy. Tanya (laughs) says, I love this song. It's still the best. And Aunt Betty Boop says, still love Party All the Time. And my friend Bonnie said, don't forget Jeff Goldblum. What an accomplished musician. So I did not know that Jeff Goldblum was a. Uh, no, I didn't either. I didn't either. Now, now we have to go news seek to him me. out. You knew that? No, news to me. I'm oh, sorry. news to you. Yeah. Yeah. Who knew? I don't know. Well, Bonnie did. So thank you, Bonnie. <laughs> and um, on Facebook, um, a buddy of mine, Matt Sweatman, said, I was just thinking about how crazy the 80s were. My satellite channel was playing Samantha Fox, and it seemed like every celebrity, uh, parentheses, or near celebrity, was releasing records then. Mm-hmm. So that's so true. Man. It is. Everybody had their album out. Yeah. That was a fun show. I'm glad we did that one. Yeah, that was good. I loved it. All right. So... We're going to do our picks of the week. So, Bob, you want to lead us off on this one? Yeah, I've been listening to a, a record by a local band, Gramercy Arms. Uh, Dave Derby is the main songwriter, and he, he played in Lloyd Cole's band for a while. And there's there's a there's a cavalcade of stars on this record. There's uh, people Doug Gillard from uh, uh, from Guided by Voices on it. it it's mm. really a great it's a great songwriter uh, pop you know, sensibility record. I highly recommend it. It's called deleted scenes and it's available on Bandcamp, and it's, it's, it's worth your time. Very cool. 
I don't really have that much from this past week because it was kind of a crazy week. But I do want to say, and, and I feel obligated to say this, since Rob and Anthony are not here this week and you know they would bring it up. You know the they first, would. The first single from the new Sparks album came out a couple of days ago. So we're recording this on uh, March 5th. So Friday, March 3rd, uh, this, this new single came out. And I got to say, it's pretty damn good. Um, the girl is crying in her latte. I really, really enjoy the song a lot. But the thing that really grabbed me was the music video. And it's just the two of them with Kate Blanchett. And, and it's just adorable. And it's got such a great energy. And I absolutely love it. She has some of the best dance moves I've seen in a long time. <laughs> I'm telling you. I am going to study that video and I'm going to learn every exact move that she made. And then when Sparks tours again and they come to Atlanta and Anthony and I go, I'm going to do the fucking dance. <laughs> I'm going to do it. Exactly. Oh my God, please do that. Alan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a really amazing video. It's very, it's, it's so stark and simple, but it's so Perfect. But what I love about it is that it's a single take. Yes. You know, That's what I was also amazed at. Mm -hmm. there's, there's no edit. It's just no. they, they start the camera, they start the song, and they do their thing. And it's so great. Yeah, and it's just on. one camera. It's just like the camera is pointing in one direction. It's stationary. And that's all it is. I also think that um, Ron sitting at the table. Yes. And then when he gets up and goes and gets the paper towel to wipe the table off yes. and he just throws it. He throws yes. it off camera. I was like, that is so genius. <laughs> He's not doing anything but reading a paper and drinking a coffee. He's drinking his yeah. latte. Yeah. yeah. He's not singing. You know, nope. so your your eyes aren't on the one who's not singing. He's not dancing. Your eyes aren't on the one who isn't dancing. So you don't really notice at first the silly stuff that he's doing off on the side. But it's so great. <laughs> it is. Yeah. All right. So that's our obligatory sparks moment for this week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and join us again next week. We are going to be having an interview with Scottish musician, songwriter and record producer Gary Clark who co-composed and co-performed the music on the 2016 film Sing Street. If you have not watched that film, go watch it before we do our interview with Gary. You're going to enjoy it. All right, so where can people find more of us on the internet? You can find me on Instagram at there underscore r underscore birds. You can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music. You can find me on Bandcamp, and uh, I have a website, therearebirds.com, and you can find me on all the streaming platforms. Right on. Bob, how about you? You can find me on Instagram, at Bob Perry Music, uh, also on Facebook, same same uh, thing, uh, bandcamp.com, uh, uh, and all the streaming platforms, uh, You can and you can view our new video uh, for yes. Love Running Over Me um, on yeah. YouTube. Yes, you can. That and I've said it before, I love that song and I really enjoy the video. So people should definitely check those two things out. Thank you. So, you know, one thing we don't usually say is where you can find our fucking podcast. You should go to Instagram and find <laughs> us at, at Modern Musicology Podcast. That's the name of our channel. Um, you can find us on YouTube. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. So go 
go do those things and follow yes. us in all those places. Please um, do. Since our two co-hosts aren't with us, I will quickly say that you can find Rob uh, doing his show, Juxtaposition, at kdhx.org. Um, it is a live show on Wednesday nights and it's archived for two weeks afterward. If you're a Doctor Who fan, you can find Anthony at his podcast, Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. And they are watching their way through Doctor Who from the very beginning, and they are up through season 13 at this point. And hey, how about you go and find my shit, too? Yeah. You can find it at CosmicCreative.com. That's where I've got my books, a few books that I've published by other authors, and links to all the podcasts that I do. How do you so, spell Cosmic, Alan? Oh, you know, that's a good question, Stephanie, because people might think you would spell it like a normal word, but <laughs> I don't for some fucking dumbass reason. So it is K-O-Z-M-I-C creative.com. Yeah, Very nice. there you go. All right, so we'll be back next week with Gary Clark. Hope you'll join us then. Until then, take care, keep rocking on, and we'll see you. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.